Chapter Forty Five of Arema. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Dodge. Arema by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Forty Five. Conviction. Sir Montague Hockin, to my great delight, was still away from Bruntsea. If he had been there, it would have been most awkward thing for me to meet him, or to refuse to do so. The latter course would probably have been the one forced upon me by self-respect and affection toward my cousin. Yet, if so, I could scarcely have avoided an explanation with my host. From the nature of the subject and several other reasons, this would have been most unpleasant. And even now I was haunted with doubts as I had been from the first, whether I ought not to have told Mrs. Hawkin long ago what had been said of him. At first sight, that seemed an honest thing to do, but three things made against it. It might seem forward and meddlesome. It must be a grievous thing to my cousin to have his sad story discussed again, and lastly I had promised Mrs. Price that her words should go no further so that, on the whole, perhaps I acted aright in keeping that infamous tale to myself as long as ever it was possible. But now, ere ever I spoke of him, which I was always loath to do, Mrs. Hawkin told me that he very seldom came to see them now, and when he did come he seemed to be uneasy and rather strange in his manners. I thought to myself that the cause of this was clear, sir montague knowing that i went to castlewood was pricked in his conscience and afraid of having his vile behavior to my cousin disclosed however that idea of mine was wrong and a faulty conception of simple youth the wicked forgive themselves so quickly even if they find any need of it that everybody else is supposed to do the same with this i have no patience a wrong unrepented of and unatone gathers interest, instead of getting discount from lost time. And so I hated that man tenfold. Good Mrs. Hawkin lamented his absence not only for the sake of her darling fowls, but also because she considered him a check upon the major's enterprise. Great as her faith was in her husband's ability and keenness, she was often visited with dark misgivings about such heavy outlay. Of economy, as she often said, she certainly ought to know something, having had to practice it as strictly as anybody in the kingdom, from an age she could hardly remember. But as for what now was brought forward as a great discovery, economy and politics, Mrs. Hawkin had tried to follow great opinions, but could only find so far downright extravagance. Supply, as she had observed fifty times with her own butcher and fishmonger, instead of creating demand, produced a lot of people hankering around the corner till the price came down to nothing. And if it were so with their institutions, as her dear husband called his new public house, who was to find all the interest due to the building and land societies. Truly she felt that Sir Rufus Hawkin, instead of doing any good to them, 
had behaved very badly in leaving them land and not even a shilling to work it with it relieved her much to tell me this once for all and in strict confidence because her fine old-fashioned and we now may say quite obsolete idea of duty toward her husband forbade her ever to say to him or about him when it could be helped anything he might not like anything which to an evil mind might convey a desire on her part to meddle with with political economy i said and she laughed and said yes that was just it the major of course knew best and she ought with all her heart to trust him and not to burden their old days with debt after all the children they had brought up and fairly educated upon the professional income of a distinguished british officer who is not intended by his superiors to provide successors perhaps it is like the boiled eggs they send me the old lady said with her soft sweet smile for my poor hens to sit upon their race is too good to be made common so now they get tinkers and tailors boys after much competition and the crammed sons of cooks and in peacetime they do just as well of such things i knew nothing but she seemed to speak with bitterness and the last thing to be found in all her nature yet discoverable as all bad things except its own are by the british government i do not speak from my own case in which they discovered nothing by the time these things had been discussed my host who was always particular about his dress came down to dinner and not until that was over could i speak of the subject which had brought me here no sooner than i had begun my tale than they both perceived that it must neither be flurried nor interrupted least of all should it be overheard come into my lock-up cried the major or better still let us go out of doors we can sit in my snuggery on the cliff with only gulls and jackdaws to listen and mount my telescope and hoist my flag and the men know better than to skulk their work i can see every son of a gun of them as clearly as i had them on parade you wish mrs hockin to come i suppose very well let us be off at once i shall count my fellows coming back from dinner with a short quick step the major led the way to a beautifully situated outpost at a corner of the cliff where land and sea for many a fair league rolled below a niche of the chalk had been cleverly enlarged and scooped into a shell-shaped bower not indeed gloriously overhung as in the far west might have been but broken of its white defiant glare by climbing and wandering verdure seats and slabs of oak were fixed to check excess of chalkiness and a parapet of a pattern which the major called egyptian saved fear of falling down the cliff and served to spread a paper on or to rest a telescope from this point said the major crossing wiry yet substantial legs the whole of my little domain may be comprised as in a bird's-eye view it is nothing of course much less than nothing compared with the earl of crowcombs or the estate of viscount gamberley still such as it is 
It carries my ideas, and it has an extent of marine frontage such as they might envy. We are asked five pounds per foot for a thread of land fronting on a highway, open to every kind of annoyance, overlooked, without anything to look at. How much, then, per fathom, or measure, if you please, by cable length, is land worth fronting the noble, silent, uncontaminating, healthful sea? Whence can come no oystermonger's cries, no agitating scurr of bad pipes, or the maddening hurdy-gurdy, no German band expecting half a crown for the creation of insanity, only the sweet murmur of the wavelets, and the melodious whistle of a boatman catching your breakfast lobster. Where again, if you love the picturesque... Uh, my dear, said Mrs. Hockin gently, you always were eloquent from the first day I saw you. And if you reconstitute our borough, as you hope, and enter Parliament for Bruntsea, what a sensation you will create! But I wish to draw your attention to the fact that Arema is waiting to tell her tale. Uh, to be sure, I will not stop her. Eloquence is a waste of time, and I never yet have half a second to spare. Fear no eloquence from me. Facts and logic are my strong points. And now, Arema, show what yours are. At first this made me a little timid for I had never thought that any strong points would be needed for telling a simple tale. To my mind, the difficulty was not to tell the story, but to know what to make of it when told. And soon I forgot all about myself in telling what I had seen, heard, and found. The Major could not keep himself from stamping great holes through his, something I forget the name of, but people sew it to make turf of chalk, and dear Aunt Mary's soft pink cheeks, which her last grandchild might envy, deepened to a tone of rose, while her eyes, so full of heavenly faith when she got upon lofty subjects, took a most human flash and sparkle of hatred, not theological. Seven, she cried. Oh, Nicholas, Nicholas, you never told me that there were seven. There were not seven graves without the mother the major answered sternly, and what odds whether seven or seventy? The criminality is the point, not the accumulation of results. Still, I never heard of so big a blackguard, and what did he do next, my dear? The way in which they took my story was a great surprise to me, because although they were so good, they had never paid any attention to it until it became exciting. They listened with mere politeness until the scent of a very wicked man began to taint my narrative. But from that moment they drew nearer, and tightened their lips, and held their breath, and let no word escape them. It made me almost think that people of even pure excellence, weaned as they are from wicked things by teaching and long practice, must still retain a hankering for them done at other people's cost. "'And now,' cried the Major, "'let us see it.' Even before I had time to pull it out, though ready to be quick, from a knowledge of his ways, "'show it, and you shall have my opinion, and Mary's is certain to agree with mine. My dear, that's what makes yours so priceless.' 
Uh, then, Nicholas, if I retain my own, yours is of no value. Uh, never mind that. Now, don't catch words, or neither opinion will be worth a thought. My dear, let us see it, and then judge. My own idea, but not so well expressed, Major Hockin answered, as he danced about, while I, with stupid haste, was tugging at my package of the hateful locket, for I had not allowed that deceitful thing any quarters in my pocket, where dear relics of my father lay, but had fastened it under my dress in a manner intended in no way for gentlemen to think about. Such little things annoy one's comfort and destroy one's power of being quite high-minded. However, I got it out at last, and a flash of the sun make the difference. Brilliance, Mary, the Major cried. Brilliance of first water, such as we saw, you know where, and any officer in the British army except myself, I do believe, would have had them at once in his camlet pouch. My dear, you know all about it. Bless my heart, how slow you are. Is it possible you have forgotten it? There came out a fellow, and I cut him down as my duty was, without ceremony. You know how I used to do it, out of regulation, with a slash like this. Oh, Nicholas, you will be over the cliff. You have shown me how you used to do it a thousand times, but you had no cricks in your back then, and, and remember how brittle the chalk is. The chalk may be brittle, but I am tough. I insist upon doing everything as well as I did it forty years ago. Mary, you ought not to speak to me like that. Eighteen, nineteen, twenty brilliants, worth twenty pounds apiece on an average, I do believe. Four hundred pounds, that would finish our hotel. Nicholas! Oh, my dear, I was only in fun. Erema understands me. But who is this beautiful lady? The very point, I exclaimed, while he held it so that the pensive beauty of the face gleamed in the soft relief among the bright blue enamel and sparkling gems. The very thing that I must know, that I would give my life to know, that I have fifty thousand fancies. Now don't be excited, Arema, if you please. What will you give me to tell you who it is? Oh, all those diamonds which I hate the sight of, and, and three-quarters of my half-nugget, and if that is not enough... It is a thousand times too much. I will tell you for just one smile, and I know it will be a smile of unbelief. Oh, no, no, I will believe it, whoever you say. With excitement superior to grammar, I cried, Only tell me at once, don't be so long. But then you won't believe me when I do tell you, the Major replied, in the most provoking way. I shall tell you the last person you would ever think of, and then you will only laugh at me. Oh, I won't laugh. How can I laugh in such a matter? I will believe you if you say it is Aunt Mary. My dear, you had better say at once that it is I, and have no more mystery about it. Mrs. Hawkin was almost as impatient as myself. Mrs. Hawkin, you must indeed entertain an exalted idea of your own charms. I knew that you were vain, but certainly did not. Well, then, if you will allow me no peace, this is the lady that lives down in the ruin when stands like a pillar by my pillar-box. I had never thought you would joke like that, I cried with vexation and anger. Oh, is it a subject to be joked about? 
I was never graver in my life, and you promised implicitly to believe me. At any rate, believe that I speak in earnest. Well, that I must believe when you tell me so. But what makes you think such a wonderful thing? I should have thought nothing more impossible. I had made up my mind that it was Flittimore who lived down here, but this cannot be she. Flittimore was unheard of at a time of my grandfather's death. Moreover, her character was not like this. She was giddy and light and heartless. This lady has a heart, good or bad, a deep one. Most certainly it is not Flittimore. Flittimore? I do not remember that name. You should either tell us all or tell us nothing. The major's tone was reproachful, and his eyes from their angular roofs looked fierce. Uh, I have not told you, I said, because it can have nothing to do with it. The, the subject is a painful one and belongs to my family only. Enough. I am not inquisitive. On the other hand, too forgetful. I have an appointment at 3.25. It takes me seven minutes and a quarter to get there. I must be two minutes and three quarters late. Mrs. Hawken, mount the big telescope and point it at the rampart. Keep the flag up also. Those fellows will be certain that I am up here, while I enfilade them from the western end with this fine binocular. Surprises maintain discipline. Goodbye, my dear. And, Miss Castlewood, goodbye. Tea at 6.30 and not too much water. End of chapter 45